many times have you thought, I would love to do this or that? Maybe write a book, start a charity, create a kid's puppet show, build a sustainable clubhouse, go on the trip of a lifetime, create a production company, whatever that thing is for you, I hope this podcast inspires you to believe you can. I'm Karen Vaughan and this is the Get Off The Bench Podcast. Howdy and welcome back to another week of the Get Off The Bench Podcast. Now, have you ever met a SWAT hostage negotiator? Hmm. I'm always fascinated by that kind of stuff and always fascinated by what are the kinds of people that they do this work with and who, how does it, how does it get to this situation? And today's guest, Terry Tucker, uh, was in the Cincinnati Police uh, Academy or Police Department and he was a SWAT hostage negotiator. So you're going to find that absolutely fascinating. Further to that, Terry um had a melanoma under the sole of his foot and had a couple of surgeries to remove that, uh, ended up on uh, medication that became toxic for his body. He, uh, following that, lost a, a, a foot, then lost his leg and a whole lot of other stuff. But now he is the founder of Motivational Check and he writes a lot of blogs, speaks on a lot of podcasts and really tries to inspire people that no matter what's happening in your life, um, you know, try and look on the positive side and try and serve others. So this is a really fascinating episode. I know you're going to love it. So a lot of gold nuggets in here, a lot of gems and a, a lot of really, um, what would you say, like, like, learnings that you, you can just plant the seed and give it some water and it'll start to help with, I don't know, just little things that are going to be helpful in your mind and help, helpful to get through. And there's some great SWOT um, information in there as well that is really helpful for living day to day. Anyway, I hope you're going to enjoy it. I'm going to stop talking and let's get Terry on. Welcome, Terry. Well, Karen, thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to talking with you today. Oh, me too. You're a very interesting man and uh, very, well, how can I say it? Very, uh, You've had some adversity, but you've got a wonderful uh, positive attitude about it. So, you know, I think it's a great thing to share with people about. Um, I often say, you know, let's not wait for adversity to become the great person we were born to be, you know, and I'm not saying you did, you know, but it's uh, sometimes we just leave it too late, you know, that adversity tends to be the deciding factor about whether we, you know, jump up. Now, you you didn't do that. So um, anyway, you've got a lot to talk about. So thank you for joining me. I'm really, really pleased to have you. Well, thank you. You're in Denver. So I'm. we just had a conversation for anyone listening that Australia is a day ahead. So I've just been telling Terry that um, his day tomorrow should be a fantastic day because it's wonderful here and I've just been filling holes in the driveway. So that's what Terry's got to look forward to. <laughs> Can't no. wait. Can't wait. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's great to have you. Um, so you are the founder of, I'll just run through a couple of things, of the of Motivational Check. So I want to talk about that as when we get to it. But you also did many, many jobs and you talk about reinventing yourself, you know, because, and I, I really love that because a lot of people will get stuck in, but this is all I know how to do. You know, this is a job I've done. The only job I've ever done, it's all I ever know. And I love the fact that you've said, well, I'm going to have to get another job and therefore I'm going to have to find some new skills. And and 
we often we often doubt our ability to do that, but I believe we've all got it in us to gain the new skills. So a number of jobs, you know, a college basketball player and coach, um, marketing manager of Wendy's in, in America, um, just a stack of other jobs. But the one that interests me is then then you went to be, join the Cincinnati Police Department and became a SWAT hostage negotiator. I have to say that slow or you never know what will come out. Which sounds fascinating because I, as I do want to, I do want to dig into that. But then you've also, um, since I think two thousand and now I've I've got to check my uh, two thousand five or something. Anyway, uh, you've had no two thousand twelve. Um, diagnosed with uh, a melanoma under your foot, and you've been fighting that. Plus, there's also been some amputations and things. You just just. It seems to me like there's just, you know, something after the next, after the next, but you're still bloody shining and and you've written a book, so we'll get to that too. So I think before I even ask you about SWAT, there's something I want to say is that we are very good at judging a book. You know, we're, we're very good at... Um, assuming we know a person's life, you know, and, and a lot of us can be very critical, oh, you know, that person, blah, 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 but we don't know anything about their lives. Do you, you know, we don't, and I reckon everyone's fighting some kind of a struggle and some everyone's been through something and, and we just be kind to each other, do you, you know, and but anyway, I'll, I'll, do you need to say anything? Because I've just been rattling on. <laughs> no, no, no. You're, I think you're absolutely right. I, I mean, we, we we tend to look at life, you know, from, from our perspective. And if we yeah. tend to shift that into the perception of other people, then all of a sudden things change for us. Because yeah. you're right. We don't know. And, and I don't know what you've been through. I, I mean, I, I've been on your side. I've I, I've read, you know, you lost your sister and and things like that. And but but I don't know anything else other than that. And so, yes, I think you hit hit the nail on the head with that word. Why can't we just be kind to each other? Why do we have to try to be tough or strong or I'm better than you? Why can't we just care about each other? And I, I I've been asked several times on, on podcasts, you know, how do you want to be remembered? And my response is always, one, I don't want to be remembered. I'm not going to be remembered. A hundred years from now, nobody's going to remember I was here. But what I want to do is connect, is connect with other people. I think that's that's so important. I think that's the reason we're here. That's, I, I mean, it really is. I, I've, I've unfortunately had all this cancer journey that I've read a lot of books on near-death experiences. And however that goes for people, there seems to be an underlying question that that is asked of these people and i mean first of all it's like you know whether it's god do do you love me yes and then the second thing is do you love my children do we love each other do we care about each other are we kind to each other you know to be keeping commandments and doing all this stuff is great but what god wants to know is do you love me and do you love the people i put on this earth with you and if you think about it from that perspective kindness is such an important part of what we should yeah. be practicing every day. Yeah, 
a hundred percent. Oh, you, you said it really good. All these, um, you know, call it God's children or what, whatever. All these people that we're on this planet with, and it's it, it's like the planet is big. It is expansive. It is huge. But when you think about how many people are on the planet, it's actually quite crowded, you know. And and if we are sharing this space with people. We've got to coexist and you can't coexist by cutting cutting everyone down. You know, you've got to coexist by, you know, we're all connected. You know, I love that you talk about connection because we are all connected in some way. All our energy, you know, is all intertwined with each other. And and, and if we criticise, you know, we, we, we're mean to somebody else, we're being mean to ourselves. So so maybe some people feel like they need self-punishment. I don't know. But, you know, it, I think it's easier to be kind. I think it's way, way easier to be kind. But anyway. You do. And you, and you get what you sow, as you know. You know, you get what you sow. If you sow kindness, you're going to get it back. If you sow hatred and fear, you're going to get that back as well. The universe has kind of a way of working things out. Yeah. I know, I know people who don't believe in that, but I have seen it unfold that many times. I have no doubts. Sometimes karma takes a little long to get to some people. But, <laughs> but anyway, it does happen. Now, when you, I'm, I'm so interested because you had, you know, you a lot of a lot of different jobs and, and all very good jobs, you know, and high skilled that you needed to develop skills. What was it that made you join the Cincinnati De- Police Department? What? Why did you go? That's sort of a big shift. Where, where did you? Yeah. That, so there is a backstory, and and if you understand the backstory, it makes a little bit more sense. My paternal grandfather was a Chicago police officer, Chicago, one of the larger cities in the United States, from 1924 to 1954, and was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. Was not a serious injury, was shot in the ankle, but my dad, who was an infant at the time, always remembered the stories my grandmother told of that knock on the door of, Mrs. Tucker, grab your son, come with us, your husband's been shot. And so when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, My dad was absolutely not. You're going to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out, get a great job, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. (laughs) But that's the life my father wanted me to lead. That wasn't the life I felt was my purpose. And so when I graduated from college, my father was dying of cancer. And so Um, I had probably the first major choice of my adult life. I could have said, sorry, dad. You know, I know you're dying, but I'm going to go blaze my own trail or out of love and respect for you, I will do what you want me to do. Now, understanding that backstory, my first two jobs were in business and healthcare because that's what my father wanted me to do. And then I sort of joke, I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away and then I followed my own dreams and got into law yeah. enforcement. Yeah. Wow. Some people, some people... I, I get that, and I get the love and respect, and I get the as particularly if someone's dying, you know, you just want to want them to live out their life. But there are a lot of people who um, live their parents' dream forever. You know, they don't ever actually go and do what what they want to do because no, it'll just upset my parents and that kind of stuff. And I, I actually do think there's a, a, a we have a responsibility as an adult to uh, to take ownership of that and to say to our parents, you know what. I, I really respect what you want, and I understand why you want that. But I want you to respect me, and and this is my life. So I'm glad you got to do it anyway. But I, it's a it's a shame your your dad died in that process. But when you oh, actually going back, your grandfather, you said in Chicago in 1924 to 54, whatever it was, 
tell me, did he did he arrest Al Capone? I've got to know. <laughs> uh, he, he did not arrest Al Capone, but I can tell you that in the cupboard behind me, I have he had two scrapbooks, and I have the uh, police photographs from the St. Valentine's Day massacre where Capone sent people dressed up as police and wiped out a rival gang in a in a garage on the south side of Chicago. So wow. my, my, my grandfather had a little bit, not direct interaction with him, yeah. but uh, definitely had, he was in he was in Chicago as a policeman during that time. You know, you, you couldn't escape something like that. Wow. Wow. It's, it's a whole other world, isn't it? It, it just, uh, you think of Chicago back then, all you think is gangsters. <laughs> like that's all, all you think. <laughs> yeah, wow. I, it really was. I mean, I, I also have in his scrapbooks are letters um, oh, shoot, the guy's name just went out of my, my head. John Dillinger was another huge uh, gangster. And uh, Hoover, who was director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, sent this man, and uh, Melvin Purvis, that was his name, sent yeah. Melvin Purvis to Chicago to get Dillinger. And so he ran the Chicago FBI office. And I have letters asking, sent on behalf of my grandfather to the chief saying, hey, could you pay these officers a little bit more money because back then there were there were no unions or anything like that. It was mm. you got you paid, you know, however long you work, you got so much money. And so I've got letters from Purvis, who was a fairly uh, influential, fairly, fairly high up individual in, in the FBI. And there have been movies made by about Dillinger and, and Purvis is in it. Yeah. So just kind of interesting to relive that 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 time. I mean, my grandfather was shot in 1933. So you can imagine, you know, trauma medicine in 1933 versus yep. trauma medicine 2024, probably a whole lot yep. different. <laughs> oh, I think that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, fascinating. And I, you'll have to start a museum. You're as bad as me. I've got I've got collections of all those. Sorts. Yeah. I haven't got that kind of stuff, but, you know, all the, all the things like that. And uh, I love it. So when you when you when you joined the um, police department, did you did you have an interest? You, be, you became a SWAT hostage negotiator. Did you go into the police department with some kind of um, a thought in your head for in the future, I want to be in the SWAT team? Like, did you ever? No, how did I you really get didn't. I, I, I didn't. You know, I started out like everybody else went through the academy, uh, you know, spent four and a half years in a marked car in uniform, you know, running a beat, answering radio runs. And usually SWAT departments on police uh, on police departments are usually the best officers with the best training and the best equipment. And I've always wanted to be part of the best in my life. Mm -hmm. So when there was an opening for a negotiator, I thought, what the heck, I'll, I'll put in for it and, and see if I can get it. And I was lucky enough to get on to get on with the team. And I, I realized when I got on just how much I didn't know and you know, <laughs> had a tremendous learning curve, but eventually got there. Wow. How long were you in the police force before you went to the SWAT team? Um, about five years. Yeah. And then how long were you in the SWAT team before you ended up leaving that? Four and a half years. Yeah, yeah. So, and and we'll get to that cancer bit in a minute. I, I'm I'm so curious about the SWAT team because it, you know you've got these elite forces, do you, you know, and then that's what it is. Do you know, people are always curious. People are they're like, what do they do? You know that that kind of stuff. What, what was your greatest takeaway from being in that sort of elite team? 
I guess one of the things that I learned very early on, and, and I never thought about this, but they gave us a formula when I started. And the formula was 738.55. And that formula had to do with how we communicate with each other, not necessarily police officers or SWAT, but how we all communicate with each other. So 7% of how we communicate with each other are the words that we use. And think yeah. about how you agonize. I mean, you know, did I say the right thing or did I write the, you know, the correct thing? That's only yeah. 7% of how your message is communicated. 38% is the tone of voice that you use yeah. with that message. And then 55% of how a message is communicated is our body language and facial expressions. So as negotiators, you know, if somebody's barricaded in a room with a gun, I'm not in that room with them. You know, I am a lot of times blocks away or, you know, at least on the other side of the door with the tactical team surrounding me. And so I don't have the luxury of saying something and see the person kind of, you know, roll their eyes like, oh, what an idiot. I can't believe he mm -hmm. said that. So we had to figure things out based on certainly what people were saying, but also what they weren't saying and how yeah. they were saying it. And we used what we call, um, we, we use tactical empathy. So in other words, help me understand why we're here. Help me understand what's going on. Not necessarily agree. I mean, if I'm negotiating with a guy who just murdered three people, I'm not going to be, oh yeah, I totally get it. You should have done, you know, but it's, <laughs> it's helped me to understand that because by helping me understand by, by that empathy, empathy builds trust and trust allows me to change behavior. And the other mm -hmm. thing we used was how and what questions. We stayed away from why questions because yeah. why questions sound accusatory. Well, Karen, why yeah. did you do that? Oh, wait a minute. Is Terry, you know, suggesting I did something wrong? I can yeah. get to the same information by saying, well, what got us to this point, Karen? Yeah. You know, things yeah. like that. So how and what questions? And the other thing, how and what questions do is they engage you to help me get you out safely. So you may say something and I may say, well, Karen, how am I supposed to do that? Now, what I've done is thrown the ball back into your court. And now you're thinking, well, how's he going to do that? And that's exactly what I want you to do. I want you to help me get you out safely. Yeah. And also what I'm seeing you doing there is, is you're unlocking their amygdala hijack and you're re-engaging their neocortex. You're getting them back to uh, rational thinking so that they can start to plan properly and execute properly. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. We used to describe what we did. And we were when we were young, we always, you know, all went to the park and played on the teeter-totter or the seesaw. And so we, when we started negotiating with somebody, their emotional brain was way up in the air and their rational brain was way down on the ground. And over the course of several hours, and these negotiations usually took hours and hours, you got that teeter-totter to equilibrium and then eventually hopefully got that rational brain up in the air and the emotional brain down on the ground because we all make better decisions for ourselves yeah. when we use our rational brain as opposed to our emotional brain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you still use that now? Like, I know I, I can clearly hear that you you teach that. Like, you say that you know you you know all those things. Do you find that it comes? It's just a like a sixth sense to you. Do you know when you're talking with people? And and, and don't get me wrong, because. I, 
I also train a lot of that stuff and I and I know for a fact that there are times when I don't do it. You know, there are times when I'm so emotionally attached to the situation, you know, that I'm I am emotionally fueled, even though I know I should not be there, you know. But so so we're all human and we're all gonna we're all gonna do that. But generally speaking, do you do you try and use that a lot? Do you you know, do you, is it sort of a second nature to you that, that to do a lot of those things now? It is. I mean, I, I I find myself using a lot more how and what questions, or I, if I find yeah. myself wanting to say, well, why did you do that? I always catch, you know, it's like, oh, wait a minute, don't say that. Go this way with it. So yeah, and and you're absolutely right. I mean, my wife and I have one daughter, and you know, she was young when we were when I was going yeah. through all this. And you're right. You'd get home, and you're like, I've got all this training, all this experience, and it totally goes out the window when. Yep does something stupid you know and now all of a sudden I'm flying off the handle and it's like oh my god you know better than this you've been trained better than this but when it's like you say when the emotion comes in when it you know you love somebody or they frustrate you or you're exhausted or whatever a lot of that goes out the window so yeah you it's it's a conscious thing you have to kind of think about what you're going to say and and the other thing I'll say is one of the things they told us the most important thing that we had as negotiators was our voice. And we were mm-hmm. to, we were one to slow down. And I tend to talk very fast, as you can yeah. probably tell. Yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the other thing was use that curious voice in a curious way. You know, end end questions with, oh really? You know, something yeah. like that 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 gets that person talking because that's what you're yeah. trying to do. The more they talk, the more they burn off that emotional energy and to the to the point where they get that rational brain engaged. You know, initially when you start in a negotiation, it's all them yelling and screaming and, and, and yeah. you know, and a lot of times, Karen, we had no idea why we were there. We had no idea what caused this. And you're like, like we were talking before, well, let's pick a rabbit hole and go down and see where we go. And, you know, sometimes it would be like, no, you idiot. I'm not, that's not what we're talking. About. Okay, fine. Get out of that rabbit hole. Let's pick another one then. And yeah. because if people don't trust you, and that's what this was all about. If people don't trust you, they're not going to open up to you. And we would spend hours sometimes over here talking about something when the real problem was over here, but they didn't trust us enough to talk about the problem yet. Did you ever lose anybody? Did did you did it ever yes. fail? Yeah. Yes. Yes. About 90% of the time we were successful with getting the person out. Yeah. 10% of the time. And I mean, we never lost a hostage, but we you know, I mean, if this person literally was a homicide suspect and knew that they were surrounded, they weren't going to get out of this, and they knew they were going to spend the rest of their life in prison, they decided sometimes to end their life, you know, to use that gun yeah. on themselves. That happened a few times. And I'm going to say something that's going to sound real cruel, but I never lost any sleep over that. And the reason yeah. I didn't was because I had great training. I worked with great people. And I 100% knew that I did everything I possibly could to try mm. to get that person out safely. Any loss of life is bad. I don't care what it is. But at the end of the day, they're going to decide, are you going to come out? Is the tactical team going to have to go in and get you? Are you going to end your life? How this ends depends on you. But I'm going to try mm. to do everything I can to make it end safely and peacefully for you. Yeah. I love no, I, I that doesn't sound bad actually because I think that 
Um, we can't control other people's actions. We can't, and we can do right. our absolute best under the circumstances that we've got and the environment that we're in. You know, we can't. We we can't always do magic, but um, no, I like that you you uh, because I I was wondering if you had lost anyone. What what trauma did that cause you? But I love that you're saying that. Don't get me wrong. I know you would have. You say you didn't lose sleep, but you still would have gone. Damn, damn. I wish that had of. I wish that had have ended differently. Like there's still a oh, yeah. there's still a, a sense of humanity in there that's like, damn. You know, I, you you silly bugger. I just wish you didn't do that. But I, I and I was also curious when you, you you said it about losing any hostages, and that would be that would be a whole different story. That would be I'm losing sleep over that, you know, because it's an, an innocent person who wasn't in control of the situation. But I'm so glad you said we didn't lose hostage. So, no. wow, wow, wow. Well, oh, okay, I love it. What's uh, one more question on this? Because I'm so curious. Uh, sort of a psychological question is: What's the most common reason people take hostages nobody oh, I don't put you on the spot no no <laughs> I, I mean at least from our perspective and again we were a city police department i mean this wasn't like you know uh there's a, there's a guy by the name of chris voss who was the the head negotiator for the fbi and he was the guy that you know if you were a missionary in the philippines and you got kidnapped by you know a militant group or a militia group yeah. he would be the guy that would go in and and get you out I mean, I don't think anybody that I dealt with ever wanted to take a hostage. It wasn't, I mean, they just got in a bad situation and their plan went sideways and all of a sudden they had one. Uh, I'll give you a kind of a an, an atypical funny story. This was um, this was a guy who had taken a hostage. The hostage was his wife. And mm -hmm. I happened to be working that night. I was a sergeant. I I got to the car, I was, I was running, uh, I was in uniform. So I got there quickly and I talked to the uniform guys. And I'm like, do you have them on the phone? It's like, yes, we do. Well, let me talk to them. So we started talking. And as I said, you don't talk about solutions to this, usually for hours down the road, yeah. you know, coming out, putting the gun down. But I just had a feeling with this guy. And, and I said to the uniform guy, I said, what's the deal with it? It's like, he's drunk. He's barricaded himself in his house. He's got a gun and, and this hostage is his wife. I'm like, okay. So I said to him, eventually, like 15 minutes into the conversation, I just had a gut feeling. I said, what would it take for you to come out? And there was this long pause. And he said, give me a beer. And I was like, if I gave you a beer, do I have your word you would come out? He said, do I have your word I could drink it? <laughs> and I said, yes, you have my word that you could drink it. And I, so I gave $5. He said, then I'll come out. So I gave $5 to one of the officers. I go down to the store, buy a beer. Tactical team put the beer on the front porch. And then I called them back. And I said, hey, your beer's on the front porch, but you don't get it until your wife comes out, you put the gun down and you come out with your hands up. Once again, he says to me, do I have your word? I can drink it. I said, you absolutely have my word. All of a sudden the front door comes flying open. Here comes his wife with her hands up. Here he comes with his hands up. We handcuff him, let him drink his beer and off to jail he went. And the reason I tell you that story, because it is totally atypical, never, never happened that quickly, yeah. is, is the we never lied to people. People would say yeah. to us, hey, look, I'll come out, but you got to promise me I'm not going to go to jail. And we would have to say, I'm sorry, but when you come out, you are going to go to jail. And then we would try to deflect the conversation to something more pleasing. And the reason we did that was because there was a very good chance, and this happened several times, that a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, we would be right back negotiating with that person 
because whatever the problem was didn't go away. And three years from now, it set them off again. And if we, if they ever felt you lied to me, then we were totally done and you were going to have to bring in another negotiator. Yeah. And it could be far more fatal the next time, yeah. like far more catastrophic. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, there's, there's a, there's a, now I really can't remember when you said about a beer, there was some hijack. And I'm I'm thinking Norwegian, but I I I can't remember. But um, there was a hijack situation, and you know they all they wanted was beer. <laughs> I just I can't remember what it was now. And as you said it, it triggered that memory in my mind. But, and they just wanted beer, so they said, "Yeah, sure, you can have beer." Uh, of course, they arrested them when they when they got up. Right. The plane, but they just wanted beer. It's like. <laughs> Uh, you, you don't realize the power of beer, do we? You don't. You don't. I mean, but you know, there were things like people would say, you know, I, I, I need a fix. I need a rock of cocaine. We're like, yeah, yeah, you're not getting that. You know, I mean, there there were yeah. certain things we were not going to give you, but I mean, a beer, yeah, sure, we'll give you a beer if you'll come out. So, sure. And you know what? The truth is, uh, underly underneath all this, most of them probably just want a bloody hug and somebody to say, oh, I see you and I care about you. Yeah. You know that that's. Probably the deepest part for most people. You don't do this stuff unless there's a whole lot of pain underneath there. You just, you just don't. Well, and that's wow, just. What you, go ahead. Go I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was, was going to say it, and and this was real important to us. You know, we would have people that would trying to be collect intelligence in terms of like, say, why are we here? What happened? So, as the primary, you might get a note that says, "Don't talk about his mother," you know, because his mother was the thing that set him off, and mm. so. You know, you, you have to be real cognizant. And, and you know, we would ask people, you know, I, I would come right out and ask, you know, if I was negotiating with you, like, if we had this feeling, Karen, are, are you going to kill yourself? And people would be like, oh, my God, I can't believe you said that because you're planting that idea in in his or her mind. No, we're not. We're absolutely not doing it. But what we are doing it, and you just said it, we just opened the door that if that person is considering suicide, that oh my God, somebody cares. Somebody yeah. wants to listen. Somebody wants to hear my story. So whenever I get the chance to talk about suicide, don't ever feel, because I've been on scenes where somebody's killed themselves and they're like, oh yeah, he was giving stuff away or he was talking about dying or he was, and it was like, and you didn't think that was something you needed to confront him with? Well, I didn't want to put the idea in his mind. You're not going to put the idea in their mind. If they're thinking of doing it, they're going to do it whether you, you were there or not. Mm -hmm. But if you give them an out, they might just take it. They might just walk yeah. through that door and not kill themselves. So if you think somebody's going to kill themselves or harm themselves, don't be afraid to ask them. Put it right in their face. Are you thinking of doing this? Because if they're yeah. not, they're going to tell you you're an idiot. And if they are, you may have just saved their life. Yeah, 100%. And if you don't have the skills to do that or if you don't have the confidence to do that, even going back right back to the start of our conversation, just being kind, you know, because I've heard people say, you know, you know, I've had I've had this teenager. Well, he's not he was a teenager, but he was an when he was came back to me, he was an adult. He said, "Karen, you saved my life." And I said, "Why? You know when?" And he said, "You know when I was just a student." He said, "He said you just sat me down and sat with me on the couch and said, are you okay?'" And then we talked about stuff, and it was just stuff. And he said, "Just because you sat down with me." There was that quality time, do you, you know. And so even if we don't have the skills to negotiate or to talk about that or we, we think it's over our head, just seeing some, just just giving someone some kindness or some just 
showing them I care about you. Hey, you know, how you going? How's your day? I'm smiling at you. I'm saying good morning. You know, I'm just showing some kinds of you're a valuable human being. You're worthy. You're worthy of my one minute. You know, that it's uh, right. we don't do it enough. I think we just don't no. just don't do enough. Absolutely. So, and I find that stuff. I find it so fascinating, and not not in a not in a morbid kind of way. It's a kind of a. I'm fascinated by psychology. I'm fascinated, but that what drives people to become um, so desperate and in such despair. You, you know, it's because so, I think it's it's sad, really, really sad. But um, anyway, did did you um? Now you said you were in there for. I think where we going nine and a half years or something like that in the pol- in the police force in the SWAT team. Now you in 2012 you were diagnosed with um, cancer. I'm going to say it. You say it because I'm going to get it wrong. Ac- the type of acrolytiginous melanoma. I would have said that, <laughs> but I didn't want to say it in case I got it wrong. <laughs> um, and so this, the, so were you? You were still in the police force when when this was diagnosed. No, actually, I, I had gotten out. I had a school security consulting business at the time, and I was coaching girls' high school basketball. Yeah. And and so this melanoma was on the sole of your foot. So how did and how did you find it, or what made you think that needed checking? So I had a callus break open on the bottom of my foot, right below my third toe, and it was during basketball season. And so, you know, initially I didn't think much of it because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot. But after a few weeks of it not healing, I made an appointment and went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he just he showed it to me. It was just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it, no dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. So he, he said, you know what? Just to be safe, I'll send it off to pathology and have it looked at. Two weeks later, I received the call from him that we all dread in our lives. And as I said, he was a friend of mine. And the more difficulty he was having explaining to me what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming until mm-hmm. finally he just laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years and I have never seen the form of cancer that you have. You have this incredibly rare form of melanoma. And he recommended I go to a, a very prestigious cancer hospital here in the States And when I did, after they cut it out of the bottom of my foot and took all the lymph nodes out of my groin, I remember they said to me, if you get a miracle, you might live five years, but more than likely you're going to be dead in two years. Oh, God. Okay. You just gave me a death sentence. Maybe I can try to turn that death sentence into a life sentence. And that's what I've been trying to do for the last, I guess, 12 years now. I was going to say, so that, that two years would have been up 10 years ago. Yep. And you're still you're still with us. So holy hell. That and when so that's interesting. It looks like a callus. I think we're we're all taught to if we see a dark spot, do you know, worry about that. But um you sort of hit the nail on the head there is about that even when we think it's well, of course I've got a callus on my foot. I'm always I'm always on my feet. Anything that's a little off to get it. Yeah, get it, it was painful. Out. You know, it was like, okay, this isn't right. You know, I know something's going on here. But like I said, you know, when you're on your feet a lot, and you know, I certainly was on my feet a lot as a police officer, it was like, but then you just get to a point where you're like, mm, something's not right here. It needs to be checked yeah. out. And I am very much, a, I mean, very in tune with my body, you know, have a physical every year. I'm not one of these people that are like, no, oh, there can't be anything wrong. No, let, whatever it is, let's go get it checked out. So I mm. guess it was a good thing I did. 
So you had the surgery and then you had, or two surgeries, you had, well, you had your groin, uh, your lymph nodes taken out. And, and, and did that not get it? Like, because you're saying, you know, that you've had this battle for 12 years. I, no. Where else is it? Like, what, what, what's happened to, why, why didn't it just sort of finish there? What was the problem? Well, one of the things is once cancer metastasizes to your lymph nodes, think of your lymph nodes as kind of like the sewer system of your body. It, it, it takes everything away. It takes fluid away, you know, bad cells, dead cells, everything. The problem is it circulates around your entire body. And one of the things my oncologist told me years later was wherever the cancer was when it was diagnosed, it was already there. So the tumors I have in my lungs now, they were there 12 years ago. The yeah. So anyway, so I have this, this, uh, the surgery, cut it out. And they're like, the reason it was a death sentence is because they had absolutely nothing to offer me other than surgery. There were no drugs, no therapies they could offer. And so they put me on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon, basically, as my oncologist used to say, to kick the can down the road. We're just trying to buy you as much time as we can. The side effects of the interferon, sometimes I think they were worse than the cancer, were that it gave me severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after oh. each injection. And I took wow. those weekly injections for almost five years. So imagine having the flu and a bad case of the flu every week for five years. And like I said, that wasn't a cure. That was just, we're trying to buy you time. Eventually the, the interferon became so toxic to my body that I ended up in the intensive care unit with a body temperature of 108 degrees, which is usually not compatible with being alive. Somehow yeah. <laughs> I survived that, but I had to stop the interferon. And the cancer came back almost immediately in the exact same spot on the bottom of my foot. That was 2017. I had to have my foot amputated. 2018 works its way up my leg. 2019, two more surgeries. And then in 2020, an undiagnosed tumor kind of in my ankle area grew large enough that it it broke my leg it fractured my tibia and my own and that's also when i found out i had tumors in my lungs and so my only recourse right in the middle of the covid pandemic was to have my left leg amputated above the knee and like i said i found out I had these tumors in my lungs and i've been being treated for them since 2000 and i mean literally i go every week I'm on a clinical trial drug. I spend a week at the hospital getting treated. I get two weeks off and then I do it, do it all over again. And I've been doing that for three years. Wow. When, when you were, you, you seem like the drug that you're on now is not making you feel like so sick, you know, as, as the interferon, but when you were on that interferon, were you that five years of that constant flu? Did, did you ever want to give up? Like, because that's hard. That's hard. Yakka. Yeah. Many times. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. you know, I, I kind of felt there was sort of two camps. There was I'm living. And then there was the camp of I'm not dying. And during that interferon time, I felt I was in that not dying camp. I'm not participating. I mean, if you would have asked me what my goals were, I would have said, I'm just going to try to wake up tomorrow morning. That was literally, I mean, sometimes winning the day was I'm going to get out of bed and I'm going to make it to the couch where I'm going to spend the day and then go back to bed. I, I I mean, I've had the flu. We've all had the flu. But it was like, oh, my God. I, am, I was so sick of being sick that I literally prayed to die. I never contemplated suicide, but 
But I literally ask God, I'm like, look, I'm not participating here. I'm not giving anything in life. I am just, I'm just dying is what I'm doing. Just take me out of this. Well, obviously he didn't, but he, he gave me the strength to literally, it was day to day. My life was literally day to day for five years. I, I, I didn't work. I didn't, I mean, sometimes a good day was I could put a load of laundry in the, in the wash machine to help my wife out or, or something like that. You know, if I was feeling really good, I might go ride the exercise bike, but yes, I, I wanted, I wanted out of that. I'm like, this is, this, this sucks. I mean, this is just not, people shouldn't have to live like this. So now you've got, and I, I agree. I, I, I'm the same. I would never contemplate suicide, but I, I can imagine myself lying there going, oh, fucking hell, enough, enough. I can't do this. Like, just take, just for God's sake, just let me die because I reckon I, I've got, got to pray. I pray that that never happens. But, you, you know, when you, like, now that you're on this other treatment and you've got those two weeks that you're out of hospital, how do you feel? Like, is it, do you feel like well enough to be, enjoying life because there's a difference between just living life and, and surviving life you know I feel okay but do you feel like you're really enjoying life most of those two weeks so I mentioned I, I guess let me kind of go back a little bit to answer that question I, I mentioned my dad was dying when I when I got out of college and this was back in the <clears throat> excuse me the 1980s my dad had end-stage breast cancer which for a man, they didn't really know how to treat a man back in the mm. 1980s. And they told him to go home and die. And he oh lived another three and a half years. And I believe he did because he had a purpose. He had something to do. Yeah. He, he was in yeah. real estate. He loved real estate. He actually worked up till two weeks before he died. And I sort of tucked that in the back of my mind and said, okay, when it's my turn in the barrel, I need to have that purpose. I need to have something to do. And, you know, being an amputee, being in a wheelchair, I, you know, I, I mean, I don't get out very much. I mean, my excitement is to go to the hospital. You know, I mean, yeah, a lot of fun. And I mean, that's that's my excitement. I mean, when our daughter got married, I was able uh, to walk her down the aisle with my prosthetic leg. Um, but I have an above the knee amputation, which is much different than a than a below the knee amputation. Much harder, you know. Your 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 thigh, your your quads, and your hamstrings. Their whole job is to move your lower leg. Well, when you don't have a lower leg, they got nothing to do, so they atrophy. And so you walk with your hip and your butt muscles, and it's it's very uncomfortable. It's very unnatural, and there's a whole lot of other things that I won't go into that you have to deal with. And and so. You know, you just you get to a point where what's your purpose? And so people were like, you need to tell your story. And so I made the brilliant business decision. Don't, never take business advice from me. I made the brilliant business decision to start a motivational speaking business just as COVID hit. And like so many other people, you know, everything shut down. No, no, nothing virtual, yep. nothing yep. in person. And so somebody reached out to me and said, would you like to be a guest on my podcast? And I said, Sure. What's a podcast? I, I had no <laughs> idea what a podcast was. And they explained it to me. And I said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And honestly, God, Karen, I, I had post-it notes all around the camera. They asked me a question. <laughs> I'd lean in. I'd read one of the post-it notes. I was horrible. I was terrible. <laughs> I, was, I, I, was, was, I provided no value whatsoever to this person's audience. But I liked it. 
And I started to think, you know, the first time we ever do anything in life, the first time you drove a car, the first time you cooked a meal, first time you studied algebra, were you any good at it? I know I wasn't. So it's a matter of, and I remember I was talking to my publisher one day and I said, Scott, I listen to every podcast I've ever been on. And I'm probably at least around 700 podcasts that I've been on. Wow. And I said, listen to everyone because I want to have a better story. I want to see how many times to say, um, or huh. And I want to get better at it. And he said, no, 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 Terry, it's not about getting good. It's just about not sucking. I said, well, thanks for the title of my next book. Just don't suck, you know, but but no, that's that's not the case. He said, I want to be good because I want to provide value and I want the host to feel that it was time well spent. So like I said, that was my purpose. That's what I do during those two weeks. And it gives me energy. Because my yeah. wife and I always have this discussion. You need to rest. You need to get your blood counts up. You need to do it. And I always tell her, I get plenty of rest when I'm dead. Right now, this is what I'm supposed to do. And it's, it is it is my purpose and it gives me energy. I love it. And and I, I totally agree with you because I teach about confidence. And I say confidence is a th- threefold. You, you, you've got to have courage. You've got to have action. You've got to take action. You've got to practice. So, you know, take courageous action and practice it. You know, just keep practicing. And same with exactly what you said, driving a car. I always use the... Um, uh, Example of using a smartphone. You know, I remember I resisted like hell when they first came out. My sister showed me hers and I said, what? You can get the internet on your phone? No, bullshit. I'm not doing that. That's ridiculous. You know, I'm going to tie myself to my desk and my, you know, my computer with the, you know, the line connected to the house. And so I was I was so resistant, but it, it is the same. It, you know, because it's it's that overwhelming. I don't know how to do this, and then we fear we fear failing, so we 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 don't do it. But we're just got to take that courageous action and just keep practicing and just keep practicing. Now you started then, so you've called it now motivational check, and I I did the same as you. I started my business right in bloody COVID, perfect timing. But anyway, it is successful. So lucky, but motivational check. So. Is that like why did you feel um you could have just kept going on podcasts, do, do you know, and just sort of said, Well, I'm Terry and here I am. That with that sort of having that business name and the website and you being you and you sort of got a got an uh, some branding, you know, around this. Why did you why did you go right I have to make it stand out was this your your need to be great or was it or was it a need to I'm trying to think what I'm trying to say was it a need to kind of find a way to pull people in who need motivation who need some inspiration who need to hear your story to to get themselves out of there I think I went the long way around that but anyway no, no, no I, I knew you were where you're going with it I, I, <laughs> no, you know it's you know, it's never been, and this this is going to sound terrible. It's never been about me. It, it really, it really hasn't. And I and I and I say that because of this. You know, I you, you can't tell this from looking at me, but I'm I'm six foot eight inches tall, and I went to college on a basketball scholarship. And so I started playing basketball when I was nine years old, and played all the way up until I graduated from college when I was twenty one. And one of the things, one of the most important things that I learned from team sports, and for me, it was sports. I think it can be whatever team you're on, is the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. You know, you realize on a team that if you don't do your job, 
not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, your parents down, et cetera. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. So motivational check, the name came from when I was in the police academy, when I was in the Cincinnati Police Academy. And our defensive tactics instructor gave us that phrase. So if we were doing something and we did some, we did some crazy things in the in the police camp, we would run to this apartment building that had this huge fountain in it and we would do push-ups and sit-ups in the like six inches of water. And I mean, we did all kinds of crazy things. But if you got to a point where you were just done, you were defeated, you were beaten, you could yell out motivational check. And the rest of the class would yell 84. We were the 84th recruit class. Just to let people know that, hey, we're all hurting, but we're all in this together. And, and when I was looking for a name for it, motivational check just seemed to keep popping up. And I mean, it doesn't mean anything to anybody else. It means something to me based on that story. But that's why I called the company motivational check. Mm. But even when you say it doesn't mean anything to anyone, it means something to you. You're the driver of it, you know, and, and I know you're saying, well, it's not about me, but you used to, it, it wouldn't be about anyone if you weren't there, do you, you know, like it, it's important. And so as the founder of something or as the person who is leading something, do you, you know, even if it, even if it's servant leadership, you know, it's still, there's still going to be a driver, like there's still going to be something that, that, that ignites your spark so that you still go out and, and do that. So I, I, I love that story. I love it. It, it. Yeah, it might not mean anything to anyone else, but it, it gets you up every single day. And like you said, it, having purpose is the number one driver to staying alive, living a decent life, you know, feeling like you're valuable and I've got purpose, I've got meaning in my life and I'm even if you're, and when you say even helping other people, you still benefit. Like every, a lot of people say, why should I give myself to that person? Why should I suffer? You know, why should I blah, blah, blah. Because every time you do help someone else, you actually help yourself. Like it's that karma coming back and, you know, it's a whole cycle. It's so by default. And sometimes you don't even, you don't even know what you don't know. You know, in a lot of ways, I'll tell you another quick story. I had a, I had a nurse that was, when I first met her, she was about 25 years old, so a relatively young nurse, but was in training on the unit where I get my infusions. And about six months later, she was taking care of me by herself. And she came into the room and she said, you know, Terry, I've got a story I want to tell you, but I'm a little uncomfortable telling it to you. And Karen, I didn't know how to respond to that. And it was like, well, uh, you know, it sounds like I might enjoy hearing it. I hope you decide you want to tell me. And so she's in and out the next couple hours and then finally comes in, sits down. It's like, all right, here's the story. She said, when I first met you, I was going to get out of nursing. I'd had a very good friend of mine die. I was in a really dark place. I talked to my family. I was going to quit nursing and I was going to go to work for Amazon. And she said, and then I met you and I see what you go through. I see the side effects of your treatment. And then I went out and I read your story. I went back and, you know, in, to 2012 and read everything about you. And she said, when I finished reading, I knew I was where I was supposed to be. Wow. Now, if she would have never told me that story, I would have had no idea that my life, and I'm not doing anything special, I'm just living my life, that my life has a positive impact on her. So, yeah. you know, people that are out there listening to us that think, you know, nobody cares, but I guarantee you there's somebody out there that is watching how you courageously handle your adversity and would give almost anything they have to walk five minutes in your shoes. Yeah.
You, that is just so true, and I, it's a different story. It's not my adversity, but um, this podcast, you know, some days I, I do some of them on my own. You know, I just, you know, start recording and prattle on about something, and and I kind of think, oh, I don't know what to talk about today, or maybe I should talk, oh, I don't know, maybe I'll talk about such and such. And, and I'm not saying that I do it without caring, do you, you know, but sometimes sure. I'm like, Nobody wants to hear, like no one wants to hear me just prattle on about crap, do you, you know, but it's that that bullshit we tell ourselves because so many people have said to me, and I, I listen to your podcast every single week, you're my, so, uh, I don't, this is not the right words, but my saving grace, do you, you know, like you're the thing I look forward to every single week. And then yesterday I was running a training session and the the woman who was running it, I didn't say anything about my podcast. At the the very end, she said, um, and and Karen hasn't told you, but she also has a podcast, you know, and she said, and she does these great sessions where she just talks by herself. She has wonderful guests, but she also talks by herself. And she said, there's always little gems and it always makes a difference to me, you know, and another guy I know who listens has got some real challenges and, you, you know, and there are days I feel like, oh, I don't even know if anyone's listening, but, you know, what's the point, you know, that sort of thing. But that's not true because I do know people listening. But if I, I it's a very important thing just to keep check of yourself because there are so many people watching and listening who for something that might seem ins- insignificant to you or just matter of fact or I'm just going about my business, do, you know, that's it's potentially changing someone's life and, you know, someone's always watching. It's always someone. So, yeah, no. and if you this We were talking about a minute ago. You know, we're all connected. Exactly. Yep. And we are all connected. That that's I know some people say, oh, how can we all be connected? You know, you're you're there, you're there. But it's it's our energy joins the minute we're together. Or the, it, sometimes we can even not even know each other and impact that butterfly effect. You know, it it impacts every decision we make, determines how our life turns out, but it also determines the impact we have on on so many people that we'll never ever meet. You know, and I might say something to somebody. And then they say something to someone, and I've, I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but if we can impact 10,000, 100,000, a million people, and all we've even spoken to is only 10. Do you, so there's a, a huge power in ripple effect, a, a massive power. There is. So you, so, so with, with you were going to say something. I, I keep cutting you off. No, I was, I was going to say there, were, there was a basketball coach here in the United States when I was growing up had a great quote, and it went like this. A careful person I want to be, a little person follows me. I yes. dare not go astray for fear they may go the same way. So, I, I wow. mean, I think that kind of encapsulates what we've just been talking about. I love that. Yeah, I love And I often see kids, too, that have now become adults. And I think, God, I knew you when you were a kid. You were such a little mischief maker, you know. And and I know, I know, I growled at you at one point, you know, get down off there, you <laughs> buddy. And now I look at them as adults, and I think, oh. And so, so one thing that's that I try to remember is that inside every little kid is an adult, do you, you know, and that that you're shaping, you're shaping that adult, and it's, yeah, not always easy to remember, but um, it's a really important thing. So you've got you've determined these four truths that you you what are they? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have them here on a post-it note. So I see them constantly. They're constantly reinforced in my mind. And so the, they're one sentence each. First one is control your mind or your mind is going to control you. Second one, embrace the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life and use that pain and difficulty to make you a stronger and more resilient individual. The third one I look at is kind of a legacy type of truth. And it's this, what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. And then the fourth one, I think is pretty self-explanatory. As long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. And I call these four truths kind of kind of the bedrock of my soul. They're just a they're just a good place, I think, to start to try to build a quality life off of. Yep. They're a great foundation, I reckon they're bloody wonderful. And I think I think many people are lacking a foundation. If we know if we have a foundation, then we can just continually we know we know there's a safety net. We know there's yeah. a safety net when we, when we start to jiggle a bit. I, I love that. And you've written the book. Um, let me get it right. Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. So the, I know it's about 10 principles, but, you know, what's what else is it about? Why? What can people expect to read it when they read well, it? I guess it, it's probably easier for me to tell you the story about how the book came to be. It was really yeah. born out of two conversations I had. One was with a former player that I had coached in high school who had moved to the area uh, in Colorado where my wife and I live with her fiance. And the four of us had dinner one night. And I remember saying to her after dinner that I was excited that she was living close and I could watch her find and live her purpose. And she got real quiet for a while. And then she looked at me and she said, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have absolutely no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth, because there is a reason, using your unique gifts and talents and living that reason. So that was one conversation. And then I had a young man in college who reached out to me on social media, and he asked me what I thought were the most important things that he should learn, not to just be successful in his job or in business, but to be successful in life. And Karen, I didn't want to give him the, you know, get up early, work hard, help out. I didn't want to give him sort of the cliches that we all know. Yeah. Wanted to see if I could go deeper with him. So I was taking notes and I kind of had these, these 10 thoughts, these 10 ideas, these 10 principles. And so I sent them to him. And then I stepped back and I was like, well, I got a life story that fits underneath that principle. Or I know somebody whose life emulates this principle so literally during the months that I was healing after I had my leg amputated, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories and they're real stories about real people underneath each of the principles. And that's how the book came to be. That's fantastic. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. It, you know what? There's so many things that, and so when you're talking about leaving a legacy, that's there, you know, that's there now and and, and it's, even if even if you pass on, and I, you know, I don't want that. You're, I think you're bringing a lot to the world, but we're all going to go at some yeah. point. And and to have a book is such a it it never goes. Do you, you know even even long after you that book still remains. And who who knows how who knows how long Amazon will last, and who knows how long uh, hard books will end up being audio books will be, end up being something else. But let, let's just, the hope is that it all, the story keeps carrying on. You know the story just keeps passing down so that 
And even if you impact only one more generation, if not two, you know, then you hope for that ripple effect, you know, to to move down. I'm with you. I have this thing, you know, and I say it all the time. I want it's not my quote, someone else's quote, and I can't think of the person, but I want to plant the sh- the tree of the shade I'll never get to sit under. You know, I think that's so important and. I have met many people say to me, you're bloody crackers, I want to sit under the tree. And I'm like, I'll find another tree to sit under. I just want to plant that one. Yeah, exactly. And that's and, and again, that's that that goes back to being part of something that's bigger than yourself. You plant exactly. that tree, that tree grows, it provides shade for somebody, and you'll never see it. And it, it's kind of the reason, because my nurses are always asking me, you know, why do you keep coming here, you know, for this treatment? Why do you keep coming every three? Why do you keep putting yourself through all the, you know, the side effects of this? And and, and I certainly it's helping me. I mean, it, it's very much a selfish reason. But the other part of it is maybe five years from now, 10 years from now, based on the data that the doctors are gleaning from my blood work and my scans, they'll, they'll perfect this drug to a point where it'll save somebody's life. And they'll get to be with their family, you know, for another 20 or 30 years. And yeah. and and I won't even be here. But that that's another part of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. I agree. I agree. Yep. I I love that. Hopefully it does save you in the in the meantime. But I absolutely agree with that, you know. Yeah. I love that. I love this talk. I love this. Um, where can people find you? Because I'm, I'm sure people are going to be interested and go, wow, I want to know more about Terry. So because we could have talked about your cat. We didn't. But, you know, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> but where can they find you? <laughs> so I, I have a blog kind of slash website called Motivational Check. Every day I put up a thought for the day. With that thought comes a question about how maybe you could apply it in your life. Have recommendations for books to read, videos to watch. You can leave me a message. That's all at motivationalcheck.com. Fantastic. Well, I have abs- I'll put that in the show notes so people can just click on it and come to you. Um, I've absolutely loved this chat, Terry. I'm um, very grateful for you for for us connecting and very grateful for you sharing your story. So I I I hope that that drug works, and I hope we're still seeing you. 10, 20 years' time. So I would love it. And Karen, thanks for having me on. I I really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, me too. Enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much, Terry. <laughs> See ya. Bye-bye. Oh wow. I don't know that there's much left to say. That's um what a story. And you know, I I just love Terry's attitude about life being bigger than yourself and I think that's such an important thing that we've got to we're going to keep that on the top of our minds and having purpose you know it's I think cancer sucks and I think that you know him having a that that great life in the police force and then coaching basketball and everything's going well and then you everything comes to a halt and I think that his treatment sucks, man, that would just be bloody awful. But like Terry says, you can, you can make a choice. You have to make a choice. Do you, you know, it's kind of like, do I want to be a, a victim and that it really is a victim of circumstance, like he didn't choose that, but it's kind of like, do I want to live my life like that? Or do I want to say, well, hang on a minute, you know, I've got, I've got a purpose here. I might as well enjoy or try to enjoy the rest of my days. And, and, make it better for other people and if you know like he's saying about his treatment if if 
if in 10 years that becomes better, you know, they find a better cure and stuff like that, some kid, you know, somebody else might, lives might be saved because of it. So anyway, I'm going down a rabbit hole, but I absolutely love Terry's story. Uh, the SWAT stuff really fascinates me. So I hope that was interesting to you as well. But um, if, if speaking of cancers and melanomas, and I, I just hate to sort of end like this, but just guys, just get checked. Just there's something that's bugging you and there's something that's um, you know intuitively feels wrong. For God's sake, go get it checked. Just do that. Well, you can find Terry at motivationalcheck.com. That'll be in the show notes. And I hope you go and check out his blog and his website and maybe get his book and um, really, you know, give him some love for the stuff that he's doing and the love that he's putting back out into the world. So I might leave it there. Uh, thanks again for joining me. Hope you enjoyed that episode and I will see you next week. See ya. Thanks for joining me. I hope this episode inspired you to take action. If you'd like to reach out, then I'd love to hear from you. Info at getoffthebench com.au and check out my website kerenvaughan.com otherwise keep believing in yourself celebrate the tiny wins and keep moving in the right direction